Welcome to Let's Talk Farm to Fork, the post-harvest podcast that interviews people making an impact in the fresh produce sector. We'll take a deep dive into what they do and find out how they're helping to reduce the amount of food lost or wasted along the farm to fork journey. But before we get started, did you know that according to the UN's Food and Agriculture Organization, around 45% of the world's fruits and vegetables go to waste each year? If you would like to learn more about how you can practically play your part in maximizing fruit and vegetable supplies, whether you're a part of the industry or simply a consumer, visit postharvest.com and try out their free online course library today. Now, time for your host, Mitchell Denton. Hello, and welcome to Let's Talk Farm to Fork, the post-harvest podcast that interviews people of interest across the food supply chain. Today on our show, I'm joined by Alec Lee from Endless West, who I'll be talking to about how their molecular whiskey is helping trailblaze a faster and more sustainable form of distilling for the spirits industry. So with no further delays, let's get started. Well, hello there, Alec. Thanks for joining me. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Before we get into the episode, I just wanted to give you the opportunity to tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do and maybe a fun fact about yourself. Sure. So my name is Alec Lee. I am the CEO, one of the co-founders of Endless West, and we are the makers of molecular wines and spirits. We make our spirits without barrels, without aging overnight, Mm -hmm. much more sustainably, much more cost effectively, um, obviously a lot faster than the traditional way of making them. And uh, I guess as for the fun fact, I I once ate uh, termites (laughs) on, on a trip on a trip in Kenya, which is great. Wow, how did they taste? Uh, you know, I've described it as like eating butter and eggshells at the same time. Wow, that's that's a horrific image, but you know what? They're, they're a delicacy. I, I was about to say, people get kind of grossed out about eating insects. It doesn't really gross me out that much. Like, I'm, I'm definitely open to it. I'm, I'm definitely willing to give it a try. I think it's worth it. Everything should be tried once. Yeah, everyone's got to give it a go at least once. Right. Before we get down a complete path about eating insects, let's talk about Endless West and Glyph. So I see that you guys started out in wine and have obviously had quite a journey that has led to developing the world's first molecular whiskey. Would you mind for the listeners giving us a glimpse into what the journey was like to reach this point? Sure. So I think the story of wine is fundamentally, of course, very similar to that of whiskey mm-hmm. um, and spirits more broadly. There's all kinds of reasons why we made that switch. But I think really the story of wine starts with my co-founder, Martin, mm-hmm. visiting a well-known Napa Valley winery, seeing this famous bottle of wine on the wall. It was a, it was a 73 Chateau Montalina Chardonnay. Wow. Um, and having this story sort of built up for him about how it changed the face of the wine industry. And, you know, there's there's very few bottles left. You can buy them in auction. Now, at this point, obviously, it's it's a 50-year-old Chardonnay, so it probably doesn't taste anything like it did in its prime. Mm. And and feeling the sense of of loss Mm. that this great work of art, this significant um, creation is now extremely rare, extremely expensive, and that there's any number of other wines like that. So... Mm. What what if we could archive them? Mm-hmm. What if we could figure out at a molecular level what makes them themselves and then build them back up from scratch? So so that was the original conception. 
I think where we really moved was like with that as a foundation, like this thesis of how do we make wine, how do we make spirits without the traditional inputs and make it faster, make it more cost effective, being able to share that quality, um, the diversity with others who might not otherwise be able to get access to it. Mm. That is something that's not uniquely an issue with wine, of course. Yeah. And in the intervening years since then, the, the pivot has been partly regulatory, partly in terms of just sort of like the economic interests. Um, so there, there's, there's a number of different reasons, but really a lot of it just comes down to the fact that we wanted to be able to play inside of a regulatory environment and inside of sort of like an economic environment that, that really made sense to grow a business. Mm. Um, at the same time, we want to build a technology that allows us to archive and, and to be able to share um, any number of wines and spirits that are out there in the market. But mm. the margin profile, the cost profile, the economic interest in the types of products that we're making, it just made a lot more sense inside of spirits. Mm. And then the, the fact that we're considered a distilled spirits manufacturer just by virtue of the process by which we make our products. Sure. Um, that is a really, really critical factor in what types of products we're going to want to start to make first. Obviously, it's going to be spirits. Mm, mm. Yeah, great. So what exactly is molecular whiskey and how is it made? So broadly, I'd call the category a deconstructionist and, and sort of like reconstruction approach. So... Mm. There's a few phases of it. First, we are scanning, that is, we're identifying or mapping the molecular profile of a product, a food product or a beverage product out on the market. So we want to understand like what makes it tick at a molecular level. Our core thesis is that those molecules you find in one food or beverage, you can find them in other places in nature as well. So there's a lot of conservation of molecules. You can think of this in a really simplistic form as the sugar molecule mm. that you find in a grape is the exact same sugar molecule that you would find in cane or sugar beets mm. or corn or other fruit. And, and, and there's literally no difference. Sure. But some of those plants grow more efficiently than others. Yeah. Right? Grapes are a very fastidious plant. Uh, require a ton of resources, grow slowly, a ton of pesticides required, you know, a ton of water in drought-prone areas. You know, the list kind of goes on. And, you know, corn doesn't. Mm. And so if we can go down this list of hundreds or thousands of different molecules that you might find in a wine or find in, in a whiskey or really any other food or beverage, by and large, you find those same types of conservation. You can find any number of different sources for certain molecules. Another really good example of this is a compound called benzaldehyde, which is really critical. Uh, the same molecule is really critical for the flavor of almonds and for the flavor of cherries. And those, of course, you know, on paper have nothing to do with each other. Yeah. But the context changes a little bit and the exact same molecule is found in, in all of these different places in nature. And just based on the context, it does different things and it gets you a different outcome. And so in the same way, we're saying, look, uh, any given whiskey, it's a combination of all these different molecules. Those are all natural products. And you can find them in other more scalable, more sustainable, more cost-effective places in nature. So let's go do that. Definitely. So we do this mapping. 
We then do this sourcing, find out where can we find these molecules, and then we recombine them. We build them back up one molecule at a time. In some cases with some crude extracts, you know, it's a number of molecules all at the same time. But by and large, it is us doing these extractions, getting those critical molecules out, and then recombining them. Yeah, wow. So with that in mind, whiskey and whiskey drinkers often bring a conventional image and culture with them one of tradition and maintaining old practices and methods. What was the thought process for the Endless West team when stepping into the industry with a spirit that flies in the face of what all the purists would consider to be whiskey? Yeah, it's a really interesting question that that I think touches on so many social factors, so many historical factors, also technical factors, of course, Mm. that it's not an easy answer. I mean, quite frankly, when we started, we were worried about a lot of backlash because you know, we were new to the industry. We didn't have experience. And so we have technical backgrounds, my co-founder and I, um, and we knew we could make a product that objectively would meet the quality parameters that would need. Mm-hmm. But we didn't know would the sommeliers come with pitchforks and torches yeah. to, to our door. And what we found was that there was a lot more receptiveness to our approach and and, and our core thesis in the industry and outside of it from just average consumers Mm. than we we originally anticipated. And so I think that boils down to any any number of factors that, that are really hard to disentangle. Obviously, the fact that the food technology movement really took off in the last 10, even just within the last five years, has really been a rising tide that's lifted all boats. Hmm. When we started, Impossible Foods was still a stealth company, effectively. They hadn't officially launched their products. Um, there were only a handful of well-known, and even and even they weren't truly well-known companies. Beyond Meat wasn't public. So so the, the industry has really exploded. Yeah. And with that, consumer acceptance has also just become much more mainstream than it was. Mm-hmm. So, so I do think that if we were proposing this to the market 30 years ago, it'd be mm-hmm. a very different story. Yeah. So that's one. Another is we found that there's a framework of tradition and, and history and terroir and, you know, the um, dude with a beard and leather apron um, <laughs> e- e- ethos. Yeah, that is very widely utilized by the industry. Absolutely. And frankly, probably overused. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's a lot of new stories in spirits outside of technology that really haven't been conversations historically, mm-hmm. right? There's a lot more people of color launching brands with their stories fundamentally about people of color. There's a lot more female uh, consumers of mm-hmm. whiskey. Yeah, you know, it, it's it's no longer seen as a man's drink. Yeah, right. The way that it, it was for for decades. Yeah, and th- there's any number of changes in the consumer base that I think makes spirits far more spirits and, and particularly whiskey far more inclusive than it once was. And I think the benefit of that is that we're a lot more confident coming to the market telling a new story mm-hmm. that isn't that hyper-traditional framework. Yeah. And we found just a lot more acceptance for something new and different. You know, the way that I sort of highlight that in terms of an analogy is like, 
the industry for decades has been only making Western films. Mm -hmm. And we're coming to the table saying, you know what? There's nothing wrong with the Western film. But if you ever want to watch a sci-fi movie, you know, give us a try. Yeah. Right? It's just different. There, there's no better than or worse than. We're not saying anything is wrong with the traditional way of, of thinking about the world, thinking about whiskey. Mm. And we think that there's very much a place for something different, something new, something exciting, a different genre. If you totally, will. totally. No, I, I love that analogy of Westerns and sci-fis. It's perfect. And I, I totally agree. I consider myself to be a whiskey drinker, but I would say that my wife is more of a whiskey drinker than I am. I, I see that you currently have Glyph Original, Spice, and Royal. Would you mind talking through the different qualities of these spirits? Yeah, so those three that you mentioned really are kind of our flagships. Glyph, of course, was our very first product that we launched. And then Spice and Royal launched maybe about two years later. Mm. Really just sort of showed the next phase or, or the next iteration of, of the flavor profile. So I'd say Glyph Original, which we called 85H. Mm -hmm. It's the first one that we came out with. I describe it best as a blend between a Japanese uh, whiskey and a, a weeded bourbon. Mm. So it's pretty light, it's smooth, it's easy to drink, but it's got some sweetness and, and, and just a tiny little bit of spice that you might find out of a weeded bourbon. Mm. So, so it's, it's a nice cross between those two. It was, a lot of it was originally inspired by the sherry cascade scotches, but it yeah. also diverges pretty strongly from them as well. And so we, it kind of ends up in this multifaceted style, if you will. Yeah, Spice is a much more traditional American bourbon style. Mm. Um, mm. You know, got much, much heavier obviously, <laughs> but, but as the name suggests, spice characteristics to it, a little bit more bite. Um, it's a little bit more raw and unwieldy, but it's also got these mellow characteristics of vanilla. And, and, and I think it, it goes really nicely as, as sort of like a, a holiday drinker for, mm. for that reason. And then Royal, Royal's a really interesting flavor profile. It, it's, it's, more along the lines of, I'd say, like a blended scotch, but it's got uh, a lot of unique sort of funk attached to it mm. that is that is very different than than a lot of those scotches. And what we really wanted to show with Royal is like, I'd say drinking Royal is as different and unique and exciting to the palate as if you're going from a generic unpeated whiskey to all of a sudden you try peat. Sure. Right. It's like it kind of like blows you away with like how it's, it's still a whiskey and how very different its fundamental characteristic is. Mm -hmm. And really like I can't describe it in in more concrete terms than that. I'm choosing peat very deliberately because it's not peat, but in the same way it can also be polarizing. Mm -hmm. Right. There's a lot of people who have, want to have nothing to do with peat. And so what we find is that Royal is actually much more attractive, not to the entry level or, or the novice whiskey drinker, but to someone who like really likes peated whiskey, really likes really intense flavor profiles. This is its own different intense flavor profile, but it's not like the easy drinking, the really smooth kind of thing that you would have gotten with 85H. Okay. Okay. They all sound really enticing. 
So being able to develop a product with a process that is not as time and resource heavy must yield great results for sustainable development. Would you mind highlighting some of the benefits that developing molecular whiskey would have over more traditional methods? Sure. So I, I suppose it's first really important to, to sort of break down the categories of benefit. Mm. So when we're talking about the sustainability advantages, we're going to talk about water, we're going to talk about land usage, CO2, and pesticides. Those are the primary ones. And pesticides is just the broad application of them. Mm-hmm. And, and, and those are those are the critical categories, obviously, when brands do and, and companies do life cycle analyses. There's other metrics that they might look at, you know, things like acid rain and whatnot. And you know, we've had those studied, but I think the, those things are a little bit more esoteric to the, the average consumer. So I think the ones that I've outlined are really the ones that like sort of the most obvious ones or the easiest to really understand. And so, you know, just broad, broad strokes when we're looking at our whiskey versus traditional whiskey, comparing the liquid itself, you know, it's about 25% less water, 25% less land required, and about 60% reduction in the uh, amount of CO2 emitted. Mm. With our wines, though, it's a very different story. So it's very product specific, right? Because it matters a lot what the feedstock is. So with something like a wine, it's a 30-fold reduction in the amount of water required, uh, a 10-fold reduction in the amount of land. It's 40% less CO2. So, so these are some pretty significant reductions in, in, in raw material resource re- requirements for switching to this approach. And almost all of that advantage is, is gotten by two things. One, switching the primary feedstock from either grapes or various other specialty grains to corn mm-hmm. for the alcohol. And then two is the removal of, of the need for barreling or for aging, which involves sort of necessary loss. So you can lose up to half of the raw material yeah. over the aging process. And what that ultimately means is you need twice as much raw material to start to end up with the same amount, twice as much resources, all that stuff. I mentioned pesticides, but I don't give you any metrics on it. And that's obviously because there's so many different pesticides. There are different levels of toxicity, Yeah, how they get applied, where they get applied. Those things are pretty nebulous. But I do think it's really important to note that like, when we're going to compare pesticide use for corn versus pesticide use for grapes, they're in entirely different categories, partly because of the value of grapes themselves. They're, they're much more valuable and therefore they're going to be much more protected. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also just because, you know, it's a thin skin. It's a very sweet fruit. It's just a lot more sensitive. So the amount of pesticide use is vastly disproportionately high for grapes than they are for most other crops and certainly including corn. Mm-hmm. What has been the most interesting discovery you found while working in food tech? Yeah, I think that's an interesting it's an interesting way to ask the question, right? Because there, there's plenty of things that we've learned about wine. I'm sure. The spirits industry, yeah. the company itself. But the industry overall, there's so many things that have really surprised me. I, I would say that the happiest surprise has been just how quickly there's been widespread acceptance mm. for 
the approach. And like I said, if the industry had been doing this 30 years ago, it'd be a very different conversation. But I think sustainability, quality of food products, cleanliness of those products, food safety, those things are so much more top of mind Mm. now than they were 30 years ago that I think that a lot of consumers have just sort of come to the realization that we just don't really have a choice Mm. as a species to feed the planet, to do it safely, to do it, you know, in in a way that is equitable as well, Mm -hmm. right? Because most of the food technical companies are also trying to create products that are ultimately going to be scalable and accessible and affordable for the average consumer uh, and, and for the disenfranchised consumer as well. And those are all things that weren't really a conversation until the last decade. Yeah. And so people have been far more accepting. In, in, and that, that's been a surprise even to me, just how quickly people have gotten on board. Yeah, totally. That's great. So now that you've accomplished your goal of turning molecular whiskey into a reality, and not only that, but having won some awards while you're at it, what are the challenges that still lay ahead for the Endless West team? Well, you know, when we have this conversation with investors, most of the time, and not just us, I think pretty much any startup is going to have conversations in the context of de-risking. You know, you need to de-risk several things. You need to de-risk your technology, your scalability, your, you know, just general company infrastructure. You know, can you grow a team? Can you manage to keep them? Can you motivate them to produce results? And then you need to de-risk the actual commercial case for, for your product. And so we're at a really unique time of the business really in the last year to 18 months where we've de-risked, sorry, and regulatory is another critical one, mm. um, depending on you know how bleeding edge the technology is. Mm. And so we've de-risked effectively all of the business, except for can we actually grow a sustainable business model on that foundation of our regulatory successes, our technological successes, our scalability successes, right? So we, we relatively recently raised a $60 million Series C, and that's really going to help us take the commercialization to the level of industrialization, if you will. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we acquired a much larger production facility. We're going to move manufacturing out of San Francisco. And, and that'll really allow us to prove to the market that we can make a lot of this product, we can make it in a cost-effective way, and that there's plenty of demand to fill the production capacity of a much larger facility like the one we acquired. Yeah, wow. Okay. So with that in mind, is there a particular group or innovation within the industry that you're excitedly keeping a watchful eye on? We're a food tech company that is in many ways a sort of standard food tech company and Mm -hmm. is also in many ways very different. Yeah. So obviously everything that we make is plant-based in, in some sense, mm-hmm. right? Because wine already comes from plants. So there's there's no need to put animals into the mix. <laughs> sure. But we're not a plant-based company in the sense that we're, you know, beyond meat trying to displace an incumbent animal method of manufacture. Yeah. 
with a plant-based product, right? And so we don't really fit into the quote-unquote plant-based food bucket. Mm -hmm. But then we also don't fit into the synthetic biology bucket, you know, the companies that are doing fermentation science to engineer yeast to make a specific protein or set of proteins to create a certain food product. So so we're not a SynBio company, and so we don't really work with the SynBio groups. Yeah. And then we're also not a lab-grown, you know, meat company. Right. So, so we're not doing the same type of lobbying that, that they're doing. We're very much in our own category within, within alcohol, which, which is CPG adjacent as, as well. So really anyone who's doing any labeling lobbying, really sort of any of the industry groups that are sort of banding together as, as companies trying to get regulatory changes, we're trying to get marketing programs that sort of align with each other. None of those really align with what we do. Mm. We're not even regulated by the same groups, right? Mm. So the the primary group that regulates us is the TTB, which is the Alcohol, Tobacco, Tax, and Trade Bureau. And they don't, they're not the FDA, they're not the USDA. So we're very much kind of having to chart our own path here. And we're very much focused on what innovation is happening specifically inside of the spirits industry. Mm. So we participate in that sense with Distilled Spirits Industry Council um, in in the U.S. and other other trade groups that are, that have long been been around, but we're not really in the scene, if you will, sure. with sort of some of the more um, some some of the other food technology companies. Sure, no worries. So, what's one thing you wish you had known when you first began the journey of developing Glyph? I think we started this with a lot of naivety about how brand has to exist in the framework of, of a food technology company. I mean, there really hasn't been a model for what B2B looks like yeah. inside of food tech. Yeah. And that's very much a path that we're charting for ourselves now. The vast majority of the commercial business we do is actually effectively licensing now. It's not true licensing. We still do the manufacturer, but most of the work that we do is actually private label. Yeah. Well over 90% of our current business is brands that we don't own. And, and we're basically building those products for others. And so what Glyph was in some sense is a proof mm. for the viability of the technology. Yeah. But I think that we didn't know how to actually create Glyph as a brand for its purpose of proving to the world the quality of what we could do and how to transition it into, hey, this is a proof concept mm. for a technology that we want to build other people's products for. Yeah, And that transition was... It is is a difficult one because you never really know exactly how to resource any brand, let alone when the purpose of that brand is actually to help you transition into a B2B framework. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. So, Alec, we are coming to a close, but before we do, I just want to ask, what is the number one thing you really want the listeners to take away from this episode? So... I'd say that I'd say that Endless West lives in a really unique part of the food and beverage industry where consumers traditionally care so deeply 
about history, provenance, terroir, right? All those things that we talked about earlier, mm -hmm. right? I mean, that, that's probably why you asked about that. <laughs> yeah. And so I think that there's an important role for the future of food tech to create products, not just that solve the sustainability, the climate crisis, right? Reducing our reliance on factory farming, on animal agriculture, the amount of land resources that goes into that, not just those staple products, but also it's going to be incumbent on the food technology industry to create these products that people have placed so much social weight on. Lest we run the risk of falling into the trap of food technology being put into a bucket of it's only there to solve sustainability problems and isn't actually capable of creating products with heart, mm. products that have value beyond just nutrition. Yeah. And so I, I really want other players in the space who are creating food and beverage not just because you know, it matters from a sustainability perspective, but also because that food or beverage matters a lot from a social perspective, from a cultural historical perspective. And we're getting it really right mm. is critical rather than getting it adjacent and good enough. Totally. Yeah. No, that's good. That's a, that's a good place to leave it. Well, that's all for today's episode of Let's Talk Farm to Fork. Thanks for listening. And thank you, Alec, for joining me today. If you'd like to know more about Alec and Endless West, check out the link in the description of the episode. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast so that you never miss an episode. And don't forget to leave a review and share with your friends. Until next time, you've been listening to Let's Talk Farm to Fork, a post-harvest podcast. We appreciate you joining us for this episode of Let's Talk Farm to Fork. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Also, if you would like to learn more about how you can practically play your part in maximizing fruit and vegetable supplies, whether you're a supplier, consumer, or anyone in between the farm to fork journey, visit postharvest.com and try out their free online course library today.